week on the Ralph Nader Radio Hour, when our guest will be procrastination expert Piers Steele. Thank you, Ralph. Thank you, everybody. Be a Capitol Hill citizen. Go to CapitalCitizen.com. Get a copy of the latest issue, print only, and roll up your sleeves to recover Congress. Change the country that way. You say we have no choice. Say you're just one person. And who will hear your voice? Hi, this is Tony Roberts, and you're listening to WBAI in New York, the voice of truth since 1960. Up in the morning and out to school, the teacher is teaching the golden rule. American history and practical man, you study him hard and hoping to pass. Working your fingers right down to the bone. My name is Leonie Hameson. Welcome to our show, Talk Out of School on WBAI Radio, 99.5 FM and WBAI.org, where we focus on issues affecting public schools here in New York City, the state level, and nationally. Our show is also available for download as a podcast. I took a vacation break for the last few weeks, and I'd like to thank my co-host, Daniel Alisea, for taking the reins during that period and doing a terrific job. Welcome to a new school year, which in New York City Public Schools will begin this Thursday, September 7th. My guest this week will talk about an issue that I wasn't aware of until a parent contacted me about it, that all schools in New York State are mandated by law to hold at least four school lockdown drills per year, which are considered by many experts to be traumatic for children, especially young children, many of whom may not even understand that a school shooting is not actually happening. Robert Murfeld, a New York City parent leading the effort to raise awareness of this issue, and Assemblymember Joanne Simon, who has a bill to amend the current law, will join us to discuss their concerns about the harm created by these lockdown drills and what some other policies and practices can be used to ensure school children remain safe. But first, some local school news. It looked like there might be a bus strike starting this week that would put kids' transportation plans in chaos. Now it looks like negotiations with the bus workers union are continuing and the strike will not happen right now, though without a settlement with the union, it may happen in the near future. The DOE has proposed alternate options for how children could be transported to school via metro cards and prepaid car services if the strike does occur. Those students, especially young students, will need to be accompanied by their parents, which in many cases is not realistic. In any case, I'll put information on the WBAI website and the resources section of the podcast on how you can keep up to date on the bus situation and what your options may be if a strike does occur. COVID rates are rising, as well as hospitalization, including a new variant which has been seen in sewage water in New York City. And though we don't know how severe the effects of this new variant may be, this is the first school year since COVID first emerged in March 2020 that there will be no mandatory health protocols in schools, which is quite concerning. This is also the first year that the class size law become, comes into effect, but the DOE's apparent lack of a real plan is evident, and we have already heard of schools where class sizes will increase this year. Class size matters, along with other advocates and more than 230 parents, teachers, and concerned citizens sent a letter to the state urging them to require New York City to actually start instituting class size reduction, and I'll provide a letter, a link to that letter as well. Meanwhile, there's been a recent surge of political efforts to try to undermine the law, including hit pieces by our former mayor, Michael Bloomberg, that were published in the Washington Post, Bloomberg News, and the New York Post in the last week, attacking the law and full of misinformation. For example, his pieces claimed that 38% of the highest need schools in New York City had already achieved the caps in the law, whereas the actual number is only 8%. Likely fewer will make the, this year, since, as I said, we expect class sizes to increase. I've asked for all three media outlets for corrections, and I'll report back if they respond and amend them. 
One may recall that when Bloomberg was first running for mayor, he promised to lower class size in the city schools, and yet during his administration, class sizes sharply increased instead. Here is a quote from his original campaign flyer, quote, Studies confirm that one of the greatest detriments to learning is an overcrowded classroom. For students, a loud packed classroom means a greater chance of falling behind. For teachers, class overcrowding means a tougher time teaching and giving students the attention they need. That's exactly right. Studies do show what teachers have long known, that large classes significantly prevent them from giving all students, and especially the highest need students, the feedback and support they need to succeed. From reading these pieces carefully, it appears that Bloomberg's main beef with the class size reduction law is that it may take away the space in our public schools that he would prefer be given over to charter school expansion, to which he has donated nearly a billion dollars over the last few years. Finally, there's also the ongoing crisis with migrant families and whether DOE is prepared to deal with the continuing influx of students from abroad by enrolling them in schools as legally required and giving them the, the support and services they need, including language instruction. There have been several stories lately in the media about long lines at the DOE family welcome centers and many immigrant families who have left those centers without any placements for their children. Now I'd like to bring in my two guests. Assemblymember Joanne Simon and New York City Parent Leader Robert Murtfeldt. Welcome to Talk Out of School, both of you, and thanks so much for being with us tonight. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much. Real pleasure. So this is something that I really hadn't known because I haven't had my kids in, in the public schools um, in the last few years. They're all older and now graduated from college. But according to a New York state law passed in 2016, all New York City schools, private, public, and charter, have to schedule various sorts of drills at least 12 times each school year. And four of them have to be lockdown drills, which are essentially rehearsals for how a school should react if threatened with a mass shooting event. First, Robert, what made you, led you to become involved in this issue? Sure. So in the fall of 2021, I had a young kindergartner just after COVID who started school and uh, everything was great. Uh, we loved the school where we enrolled. Uh, other parents loved the school. It's a great school in Manhattan. It's a progressive school. But uh, in October, about four weeks into the school year, um, a lockdown drill was scheduled and none of the parents knew about it. And all the parents learned about the lockdown drill up on pickup from their own children that such a drill actually occurred. The children themselves, kindergartners and first graders in this instance, the classes are mixed in terms of age, were quite frightened by the situation. Um, my own child was frightened. Um, children of other parents were frightened. And some children really didn't take well to this issue. For instance, one child came home, uh, started locking the windows in uh, his room, thinking that robbers would come in. Um, about a month later, that same child, a five-year-old, asked his mother, what will happen if a bullet enters my body? And that child actually needed counseling. So I got together with a bunch of parents to look at the issue, and we found out that it's a statewide mandate. So the hands of the principal in our school are basically tied, and that principal can only enforce the law, and there's nothing that that principal can do about it. And that's where we decided to basically um, change the law in Albany. So, Assemblymember Simon, can you talk a little bit about the research that shows the psychological impact on, of such lockdown drills on children? And what specifically your bill would do about it? Sure. And if I can, um, I'd like to start by just quoting a, a brief thing from the beginning of a, of a research article, um, which where it opens with this quote. I was working in my preschool health office when the loudspeaker came on, but this time it was not the voice of the school principal. It was the sound of gunshots. I had no students in my office, so I locked the door. I covered the glass. I closed the blinds. I hid. I had no idea if this was an unannounced drill or an active shooter in our building. In the end, it was a drill, an unannounced one. The person running the drill used an app on her phone that sounded like gunshots, and she played it over the loudspeaker. So this points out a number of the things that we do in our bill. Um, this is school personnel who didn't know it was going to happen. Um, how uh, They're hiding. It, it, Right. And, and potentially just as fearful. Somebody played gunshots from an app 
we have no research into that, uh, you know, how those things are done, right? Um, and uh, uh, this was something that um, could have been very real, and nobody knows whether it's real and to how to react to it. So, you know, what we found is that the current law, for example, mandates four uh, lockdown drills without any guidance on how they should be conducted. And they also don't define lockdown because as we've looked at the research, there are a lockdown can be for a number of reasons. There could be some emergency, uh, uh, you know, health issue that is, uh, uh, or a fire not far away that we want to keep the kids safe or what have you, right? So that's not really defined. Um, it could obviously be um, a practice, um, and it could be an active shooter or an armed assailant drill. So those things aren't necessarily defined. And the same thing with simulation. When there is simulation used, is that a good thing, a bad thing? How should it be done? Nobody knows any of that. So, um, you know, the long and short is that research is showing that students are often traumatized by the drills and that there's, on the other hand, no evidence that drills actually save lives that students learn that stuff. Now, just give you an example. I use her as a guinea pig sometimes. I talked to my granddaughter the other night. She's going into her junior year of high school. I said, what do you remember about lockdown drills when you were a kid? She said, I don't remember any of them. I remember them in high school. And she told me what the kids in high school are saying. She had no memory of a lockdown drill being done. And I can't imagine that that was the case, right? But she's forgotten it all. And, you know, this is a smart, capable kid who's actually very thoughtful about things. When I mentioned some of the simulation ideas that had been done, she was like, oh, my God, those parents must have been very upset. Right. So she thinks beyond herself uh, uh, kind of kid. Right. And um, uh, that tells me that young students, uh, we don't have any evidence that, for example, practicing repeatedly actually teaches them anything they're more likely to forget it and or be traumatized. So, um, you know, ultimately it means that, you know, we need better strategies. So our bill addresses it in a number of ways. It has to be trauma-informed. We have many, many kids in New York City, but certainly in other parts of the state, kids have been affected by gun violence in their communities, not because they themselves personally were affected, but it's in their neighborhoods, or maybe there's been, uh, you know, a shooting or, you know, whether it was a death or whether it was an inju injuries in their families uh, uh, and, and their communities. It needs to be culturally competent. We have kids from all over the world here um, who are uh, need to be, their needs to be addressed in a way that they can understand them, right? So we can't just assume everybody's going to have the same experience. We have to be aware of that. We're not, there's nothing in this that accommodates students with disabilities. Now, of course, those kids with PTSD or anxiety or ADHD, are they paying attention? Are they going to learn from the drill, right? So what do we do with those kids with disabilities that we need to accommodate in anything they do, right? So we don't want the kid in the wheelchair to be stuck in a corner. Now, I'm not saying that any school does that. I know the school across the street from me brings the kids to my office. That's fine. We're happy. That's an area of safe refuge. But the reality is, you know, that's that. not everybody has an assembly office across the street, right? Um, it needs to be transparent. So school personnel needs to know in advance. Parents need to know in advance. Um, one of my co my uh, assembly colleagues told me, oh, I learned when my daughter, uh, she came home the other day and told me about this. And another colleague whose son is probably about nine now, um, who told us all that, you know, she, she one day he was talking about something, goes, oh, I think that was the same day of the sh that the shooter was in school. And she said, shooter? And he said, yeah, there was a shooter a couple of weeks ago. She said, there was no shooter. But she didn't know. And she found out weeks later. And he did not realize that it was a drill and it wasn't real. And it wasn't kindergarten or first grade. So we know that children will often believe something is real, even if it's not. Um, and so... That needs to be uh, uh, done. And then the other thing we do is we reduce the mandate. So right now it's a mandate for four. And, you know, a lot of people don't like mandates. Um, we reduce the mandate to one. But we allow the discretion within the school district, if they have a particular reason or a particular work that they've done, et cetera, et cetera, they can do more. It's just that it's going to be done on a district by district basis with the local community as to what it is they want and they feel they need. So we're not tying anybody's hands behind their back. 
we are actually allowing them to do more if that's what they want, but we're not requiring those schools for whom they have learned this isn't particularly effective for saving lives to not have to do more than one. So Robert, can you give us a brief summary of how the New York law as it exists now with four required lockdown drills compares to state laws around the country on this issue? Sure. So the entire lockdown drill scenario exists really since Columbine. So it's 24 years ago that Columbine happened. Horrific, horrific event in 1999. And, um, Lockdown drills really started as a practice in the United States of America the subsequent year. So you can really start the year of lockdown drills. They actually were called Columbine drills at the beginning since the year 2000. Since the year 2000, you have no federal guidance on that issue. So there is no federal law that mandates anything. It is completely left up to the individual states. You have about 95% of American schools who, that practice lockdown drills, which means active shooter scenarios as well and simulations, as Assemblymember Simon has described. And uh, you have about 40 states that have regulations on that issue and 10 states that have no regulations on that issue. But if there is no regulation, that doesn't mean that lockdown drills are not conducted. Often schools voluntarily conduct these lockdown drills. Regarding the numbers game in terms of the frequency, you have about 20 states that require one drill. So the idea is that New York at the moment with four drills is actually in a camp of about 10 states that have two to four or sometimes five drills even. Um, no, so you have two. You, you Only have one 10. has five, I think, Oklahoma. But... Oklahoma, exactly. Yes. So, so you have about 10 states that have two drills, 20 states that have one drills, and then you have about another 10 states that have three to five drills. So we want to bring New York from these 10 states, three to five, into the larger group of 20 states that only have one drill. That is the patchwork in terms of frequency of the drills across the United States. Now, you have multiple legislative developments similar to New York that actually came about organically this year and last year. And then Illinois is the one that is the odd one out. Illinois in 2021 already completely under Governor Pritzker reformed its lockdown drill regime, including an opt out. So in Illinois is a state where you can it's download, yeah, yeah, you can download a form on the, on the website. Uh, from Illinois, which is similar to the opt-out form from state testing, where you as a parent can write your principal that you don't want to participate in that system for whatever reason that you have, which could be, as Joanne Simon uh, described, it could be, you know, gun culture that is quite prevalent in the society where that child grows up. Uh, in Illinois, I spoke to an educator and he said very smartly when you had the July 4th mass shooting, which is a family event. There were many children um, at that, you know, July 4th parade. Why would you put these children through a lockdown drill just a week later once just as they experienced, you know, such a horrific event, such as the July 4th mass shooting? Connecticut, so Connecticut, Maine uh, have introduced um, legislative reforms. Uh, you have as well uh, Georgia, where on the Republican side, legislative reform was introduced, including opt out. So it's quite diverse, um, but everybody's thinking about it. And so Illinois would explicitly allow parents to opt their kids out, as is um, the bill that uh, uh, Joanne Simon has introduced. Is that right? Correct. Right. This, this is Laini Hameson on Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM or WBAI.org. And I've been speaking to Robert Mertfeld, a parent leader helping to lead the campaign to amend the current state mandate that requires every school in New York carry out four mandatory lockdown drills per year. And Assemblymember Joanne Simon, who has introduced legislation in the state assembly to do just that and to allow parents to opt their kids out. Um, um, Joanne, can you explain how important it is that teachers receive some training on how to conduct the drills um, and instead of just learning by trial and error? And right now, there's no mandatory training at all. Is that right? Well, that's right. There's no training at all, um, much less any sort of standard guidelines for what that training should be. And in fact, now that we've done, that there is research, uh, you know, the bill embodies sort of the basic, the sort of guidelines about how that, uh, you know, uh, training should occur um, and some basic principles about that. There are some programs out there, some modules. New York State has actually worked on this issue, um, and they have uh, contracted with some folks to do 
sort of modules for teacher training because New York recognizes that we need our teachers to know what they should be doing and what maybe they should stay away from doing and not get too carried away with uh, making it realistic, which may or may, which may not be and is more likely not to be very effective. Um, there is a task force that the governor created. And so state ed is working with uh, its partners, both the folks that they have worked with on this, as well as the governor's task force. And so we're going to continue those negotiations. There are a couple of things that um, some people are concerned about. Number one, you're in a system that has been doing four. You don't know why you're doing four, but you've got used to doing four. So people are, is four, you know, is four really good, right? There's no research to demonstrate that or to support that, but people aren't familiar with that. So uh, the vast majority of states, as Robert said, do one and others do two and very few actually do more than uh, than two. Um, but the other thing is that, um, uh, you know, the 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 efforts have been uh, in many respects. This is, I think, true around the country, um, somewhat dominated by law enforcement personnel who kind of know about some of this stuff. But even the Association of School uh, Safety Officers. Um, uh, in some of the press after we did a press conference in Albany said they need to be trauma informed. They really shouldn't be active shooter simulations, et cetera. So many people who are in the business of doing these things are very cognizant of that. Um, so we're going to be working, um, you know, uh, uh, with the, the, uh, department, um, you know, over the, the fall and into the beginning of the legislative year, um, to ensure that, you know, the bill addresses those issues. Some people are very concerned, for example, about opting out. Why? They're concerned that if students really need to know this and they're not there, are they not going to learn? Well, you know, my granddaughter is one example. She's certainly not the world. And that is that she might not remember it anyway. Um, but also that um, uh, we want to standardize what it is kids are getting, standardize what the teachers need to know and how to do these effectively uh, so that we would do better drills, for example, more likely to be effective because they would meet the needs of kids as opposed to some theoretical need. Um, but, uh, you know, there, I do understand the concern that if parents opt out, their children might not know how to follow directions, et cetera. But there are, in fact, a number of, of uh, programs out there that are online or, uh, can be done that are an alternative. So for kids, for example, who are so traumatized, they really shouldn't participate. There's an alternate way for them to get that information that is really child centered. Uh, trauma-informed, culturally competent, et cetera. Um, so there's another way to do this than what um, people have gotten used to. But to the extent that there are questions raised, it's mostly because people really haven't um, asked these questions or really thought about it. So we're going to be working with people to make sure that the folks that need to know are in a better position to understand, you know, why this bill needs to be um, uh, passed and how it's a good thing. Um, you know, one thing we're very careful about is we're not being critical of the original bill sponsor um, uh, because, you know, people didn't know. Right. Um, and so we're, you know, proceeding from a uh, a baseline of if you don't know, you don't know. You know, if you, if you didn't know, now, you know, now we know there's a lot of things that um, we didn't know in the past. We need to use that. We need to have our decisions that we make going forward informed by what it is we've learned through experience um, in doing these drills. Through research and experience and the advice of experts. Yeah, yes. I don't think anybody is claiming that the, the people who originally sponsored right. or voted for this bill didn't have the mm -hmm. best of intentions. Exactly. But that it came out of a situation of unprecedented crisis and they were doing the best they could at the time. Mm -hmm. which doesn't mean it's the best that can be done now. Um, Robert, uh, the mayor and the chancellor had a news conference recently, I think it was last week, where they announced several other school safety measures that they intend to implement in our schools, including a new tip line and more violence interrupters. Can you describe what they talked about? Sure. Um, so you have about four school hardening measures that have been introduced in New York City. The most, um, you know, visible one for everyone is that all front doors of public schools 
um, are starting to be locked already with buzz-in systems. So the idea is, is by the end of the year, they want to complete all elementary schools in New York City. I believe this is, um, I forgot how many schools it is, but then they're going to move on to middle schools and high schools. So old school doors will be locked, which again comes to the point at the moment with four lockdown drills, the burden is on the kids for a problem that adults should really solve amongst themselves. If we are already locking the front doors of a school building, which many schools don't like, they like an open access to their school. They want to have, they want to have a vibrant school community. They want to have parents being able to go in and out of school after drop-off. If the schools are already locking their front doors, that already shifts the burden onto the adults. And we can, again, engage in a discussion as well with the mayor here that he could potentially support our Albany action to bring down the mandate from four to one. The other school hardening measures that have been introduced is a 24-7 emergency line that the mayor has established. So if there is an issue in school, you have direct access to law enforcement uh, through this 24-7 emergency line. It's something that they actually crafted in response to panic buttons that um, uh, were um, recommended by Albany. Um, to be introduced. And then they said the emergency line is a better system. The other one is you have weekly meetings between principals and NYPD officials now. And you had one large Zoom call as well with all principals and the NYPD and the mayor last year. And the last one, uh, you know, the poor school safety officers now all have to wear bulletproof vests. It's something that's been introduced about a month ago. And um, yeah, so with these school hardening measures, whether you like them or not, Regarding the lockdown drill issue, it works, um, you know, in our advantage that we can shift the burden onto the adults and away from the kids. Just to be clear, the 24-hour uh, emergency line, is that the same as the tip line so that if parents or others have concerns or suspicions that something is possibly being planned um, in their to attack their school, they can call that number? Is that what that's about? That's a great question. I don't have the correct answer. I think it's a separate system. It's a system from the school directly with the NYPD. It is not something where you can send a tip, but it could be com- it could be the same, but I don't know. Yeah, I read something about a tip line. I'll try to find out more and talk about it in a future podcast. Um, you know, Lainey, you, you raised something that is related, but not uh, the same, and that is um, when schools have learned, and I've heard something, Seen Facebook postings by uh, a kid or, or, or what have you that makes them be concerned. Uh, there is also uh, a protocol that every school has. They already have it, for example, for reporting child abuse, but they have it for the red flag law, right? Hasn't been as, uh, as used as frequently until the Buffalo shooting, right? But Suffolk County used it quite a bit, right? They were the leading county. Um, and, uh, and that works for schools, right? That's one reason why New York's law, uh, is one of the few in the country that actually empowers school personnel, uh, to also file, um, a, a, a petition, uh, for an extreme risk protection order. And of course, the way that gets done is there's somebody designated to do that. Um, but it, it is because there are, you know, we can learn things. Now, maybe that young person is not going to, um, engage in that behavior in that school, but maybe somewhere else. And that's a concern as well. We want really want to reduce uh, gun violence. So, Joanne, can you also explain some of the other elements of your bill, including uh, limiting the overall mandated, mandated number of drills? Yeah, and the reason we did that is because, um, as the research has shown, um, New York is in the top few uh, uh, states in the country that have four. Uh, There's only a few that have four, if you have three. Um, And uh, one that we know of uh, that fairly recently is Oklahoma that instituted five. And so when we looked at what are other states doing, um, we found that, in fact, New York is an outlier, that New York has four that are mandated. And again, one of the things we're very sensitive to is mandates uh, people resent that, but we're giving the schools uh, the ability to make that determination for what works in their communities. Right. But overall in the law, there's mandated 12 different drills. Yes. 
And so, and, and some of them are fire drills and some of them are some other kind of drills that I don't even know what they're supposed to be. Well, you know, they're a little, um, uh, I would say somewhat amorphous about what those drills are. They may be a drill, for example, for, uh, some other kind of, uh, substance or something if it's not uh you know uh, a fire drill i think in real life they're pretty much fire drills and there so there's eight of them which is an awful lot which means you know you've got 12 right when they pass the 12 i mean the four man mandated um uh uh lockdown drills they reduced the number of fire drills from nine to, to eight um, but, you know, there's only 10 months in a school year and there's 12 drills. So what happens is, and, and I think that a lot of people in school communities, um, from administrators to teachers to parents to others, really are not crazy about having to do eight fire drills because it perceived as a waste of time in, in many respects, but also takes time out of the day of learning. You know, when I talked to my granddaughter the other day, I said, you know, when do they do these drills? They do different periods. You know, she's in high school now. And she said, no, they do them. They tend to do them in the same period. And last year, that was my math class. And I really was upset because I was missing learning. I was missing instruction. And uh, this year, it's a different, a different class, so she doesn't mind it as much. But they're trying to do them towards the end of the school period so that they're not interrupting the middle of the class period, right? So um, it's being done differently everywhere. And I think that that's good advice. If you're going to do it and you're in a high school, do it towards the end of that period so that the kids then go back to the next class, right? Um, that makes perfect sense. I don't know what schools are doing. They're really all over the map. Um, but it's really the notion that, we are uh, doing lots and lots of these drills. It's not entirely clear how effective they are, certainly not when it comes to the lockdown drills. And there's an, a, an awful lot of people who think that the, the number of fire drills is excessive as well. Our bill doesn't actually do that, but I know from talking to people about the uh, the bill, um, uh, pretty much everybody would love to have fewer fire drills. So your your bill would reduce the number of lockdown drills to one, but would not change the other unspecified right. eight drills that right. mostly probably are fire drills. And and part of that is we really wanted to call attention to uh, the lockdown drill issue because there's no evidence one way or the other that students are, for example, potentially harmed by doing fire drills. Um, that may be the case, but we have no research to that effect. What we do know is from the research, and this has been, you know, brought up the AFT, um, uh, every town for, for gun violence, Giffords, uh, a, a lot of people have been talking about this. Independent researchers are doing research on this. And there seems to be a lack of research in certain areas, particularly as to if you're doing a drill, what is the best way to do it? We know more and more what's not a good way to do it. There needs to be additional evidence. And that's why, for example, um, it's discretionary whether people want to do more than one. Right. There's one study that was published that was mentioned in one of the materials that Robert sent me, um, I think in a peer-reviewed uh, research that showed that um, these lockdown drills lead to a 39% increase in depression, a yes. 42% increase in stress and anxiety, and a tw 23% increase in overall physiological health problems, which sounds extremely concerning. Well, yes, exactly. And I'm glad you mentioned the, that data. That was done by uh, research that was done by a, uh, a group of organizations. Um, and uh, that is alarming, right? So what we don't know, for example, is that if a child already had anxiety, how much more it is. From what we can tell from this study, these are kids for whom didn't have anxiety, but they've got increased anxiety. Right. They have increased depression. This is not a good thing. We aren't doing this to harm students. We're doing it to help them. That's what everybody thinks they're doing. What we need to do is is uh, uh, recognize that, in fact, what we've been doing, 39% increase in, in anxiety is very significant. Yeah, and, and we're already very concerned about us, emotional problems of students in schools that seem to have increased um, as a result of the pandemic. Yes. Uh, school phobia, school avoidance, school resistance, uh, attendance levels way down. It seems to me that this, if you wanted to design a system to worsen all those problems, 
Um, that would be these school lockdown drills for kids who are already afraid to go to school, who are already experiencing high levels of stress and anxiety. We yeah. should be doing everything we can to lower those levels um, rather than maintain them. Absolutely. And, you know, Robert mentioned that, you know, one student was going home and locking the doors, you know, those kinds of behaviors. I've been around, uh, you know, neuroatypical individuals for years and years and years working with this, you know, obsessive compulsive disorder is is an anxiety disorder. If a child is coming home every day, then they're going to develop rituals potentially, and they may end up developing obsessions. They may end up uh, really struggling in a fundamentally different way than anybody may have anticipated. And so that's why we need to do more research for sure. But we also need to sort of stop doing what it is that we already know is increasing anxiety levels in children by 39%. So may callers. I add, may I, yeah, go on. May, yeah, may I add something? Sure. Um, so, you know, one of the most important voices that have emerged through this process are the pediatricians. Yes. So the, so the American Academy of Pediatrics uh, supports uh, Assemblymember Simon's bill wholeheartedly. And this is 5,000 pediatricians in New York State. Yeah. And pediatricians are there. If our child is sick, who do we call the pediatricians? We trust the pediatricians with everything as it pertains to our children. And uh, Joanne mentioned at the beginning of this call that, unfortunately, this discussion on lockdown drills is quite dictated by law enforcement. So you have a lot of law enforcement officials who are retired police officers who then in private practice, you know, view K kindergarten to 12th grade as a, as a business pipeline where they can offer their services regarding lockdown drills or other school safety measures. And uh, the pediatricians are coming out now as the main counter voice of reason that uh, we need to rethink the system. Um, and, uh, and if the pediatricians think it's no good, I think we can trust the pediatrician's advice. Yeah, you know, um, whether that's the a business model issue or not, you know, certainly law enforcement has experience in the area of keeping people safe. Um, but, you know, uh, we're talking about children here, and it's not the same as, um, you know, keeping adults safe, right? And so there needs to be, I think, uh, more people involved from, from education and in psychology um, uh, in our schools uh, to be addressing these issues. And, you know, we did, uh, the, with the bill is supported by the, uh, New York, uh, chapter of the American Associ- uh, American Academy of Pediatrics, um, and specifically point out the advance notice, the accommodations, age appropriate, trauma informed, et cetera, that those things are really, uh, important, right? Because what's right for high school kids is not necessarily right for our kids in middle school or our kids who are, you know, uh, five, six, seven, and eight. And I know New York City now is starting to uh, train the teachers. Uh, I haven't seen any reporting that they're doing uh, drills, but they're training the teachers in pre-K. And training teachers what to do is not a bad idea. I think that that you know, I don't know what they're telling them, but it's a, it's a, it's a good idea. The teachers need this. We haven't really trained our teachers either. So um, it, it's, uh, you know, very important. Um, and the, the other thing is, you know, we are, um, uh, we, we've been um, uh, talking to some other folks as well, uh, both, you know, locally and in New York state, as well as nationally, because this is a big issue. Um, and those, uh, it, those organizations that are most, uh, informed about gun violence and about, you know, um, uh, 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 t- violence interrupters, you know, which works very, very effectively. That violence interruption model is very effective. It's particularly effective with young people, right? So often you get this in the high schools, for example. Young people need to know that there's a way to deal with their issues, their anger, their frustrations, uh, their fears, other than picking up a gun. You know, um, and, you know, New Yorkers Against Gun Violence runs a great program in many high schools on kind of what I would call alternate dispute resolution. They don't call it that, but basically it really informs kids that really, you know, if you have a gun in the home, you're much more likely to be uh, endangered. Uh, girls who think that their boyfriends have a gun, they'll protect them, are much more likely to be injured by that gun as opposed to protected by uh, that young man with a gun. And they don't know this stuff yet. So it's an educational thing, but it also gives them strategies for dealing with their issues 
in a way that isn't reliant on a gun. And so, you know, that's the kind of thing we need to be doing as well. And that is, uh, inform, should be part of what informs what we do when it comes to lockdown drills. So listeners, um, what do you think about school lockdown drills? Should the mandatory number be reduced in New York schools and should parents have the right to opt out their kids? Do you think teachers need training in how to carry these out? Um, if you want to express your views or have any questions for our guests, please call us at 212-209-2877. That's 212-209-2877. Uh, teachers, um, how do you feel about this issue? Do you feel that you've gotten enough training? Do you feel like it takes up too much time or traumatizes your students? Um, what's your point of view? Um, Robert. I know that you are planning um, a press conference on this issue. Is that right? On Tuesday, do you want to talk a little bit about that? Um, sure. I think uh, Joanne Simon can talk about this uh, more extensively yeah. than I can. It's uh, okay. it's really the, Joanne, it's, it, you it, it's the sponsor's press conference. Yes. Uh, you know, my the uh, my partner in the state senate is Andrew Gennardis. Um, he is the uh, the Senate sponsor, so he and I are doing a press conference on Tuesday morning at 10 o'clock um, on the corner of uh, 4th Avenue and uh, Baltic Street, which is uh, in front of, but not on the school property, of PS133. Um, and uh, we're going to be calling attention to this issue. We have a number of people that will be joining us to speak, including uh, the uh, uh uh, the fellow who is the head of the New York State uh, uh, Pediatrics uh, Academy. Um, he will be speaking. Uh, we'll have somebody, we'll have young people who are doing uh, work on gun violence interruption. We'll have somebody from March for Our Lives, uh, the New York chapter, uh, speak about uh, this issue, as well as uh, um, the executive director of New Yorkers Against Gun Violence. So we have a number of people joining us. Um, and uh, we're looking forward to, we hope people will, uh, you know, join us. We'll, I think we're probably going to be uh, live streaming it as well. Uh, but we want to call attention to this issue as we go back to school. Uh, we're not, we're doing it before school. We're not looking to interrupt anything. Uh, but we want to make sure that parents and educators are informed about this and what we need to do uh, to fix this situation. And if, uh, parents want to show up at the press conference. Can they do that? Should they call your office Tuesday morning? I guess your office is probably closed on Monday. And, and where do you expect to live stream it on Facebook or? You know, I'd have to tell you my staff will be figuring that out. Um, I'm sure we're going to record it, but I'm not sure whether we're going to live stream it, but it would be my staff that would tell me It'd probably be Facebook. I would assume. Um, okay. But um, uh, I, I wouldn't want to, uh, you know, um, to take that, you know, on faith. Um, but, you know, if people don't need to, to, uh, come to, um, uh, uh, to call the office, um, my folks will be arriving early and then leaving fairly early so that we could get there in time to set up, um, and have everything ready for the press conference. Um, and, um, people are always, uh, welcome to call my office at 718. 718- Two four six four eight eight nine. My email address is Simon J at nyassembly.gov. Um, and uh, Senator Gunardis' office, I think it's Gunardis, that's the way the Senate does it, Gunardis at nysenate.gov. So very important that people share their views with us. Um, we're, you know, we see this as, um, uh, you, you know, organizing to uh, get this bill passed, but also. We want to educate people. We think that's very important. It's important that everybody be educated about what we now know, what we need to know, and how we can address this issue in a very constructive way. Right. And um, it's really quite commendable that Senator Gennardis is going to be working with you on this because Mm -hmm. the bill already passed the Senate. Is that right? Yes. Yes, it passed the Senate. um, And uh, it hasn't gotten through the Assembly yet. Um, and again, part of what we're doing is we're looking, you know, uh, one thing that happens when you do legislation, you find out that, um, uh, you know, this issue about the number, for example, let me just say is one of the, the issues. There's been a lot of people talking about uh, these uh, drills needing to be age appropriate, trauma informed, culturally competent, accessible, tra- transparent, 
et cetera, right? Um, and a number of people, education uh, uh, folk, education uh, labor, um, have put out uh, statements to, to that effect. But um, the issue that was the sort of thing they were focused on, because most states are doing one or two at the most, is not the number of drills, but how to do them, right? What is right now we're, we're traumatizing children that we don't intend to traumatize. They should be, they should, they should feel safer after a drill as opposed to more fearful, right? School is where they should be feel safest. And we are unfortunately under the guise of, or the name of trying to make them feel safer. We're making them feel less safe. Um, nobody wants that situation to continue. So folks have focused on that, but they haven't focused on the number. And in New York, the issue is both, right? The trauma-informed, the age-appropriate, all of that, the guidance on how to do these drills in the most effective way so that they're not all over the place. They're more standardized. Everybody knows what they should be doing. Um, uh, that's an improvement for, for all of us, but also that we, you know, we don't need four, right? Um, and uh, if the community thinks they continue to need four and that's their local decision, fine, but it's the mandate issue. Um, and that hasn't been addressed in, in, is with this, uh, the same clarity, in large part because most states aren't doing it. May I so, add another point quickly, yeah, um, uh, which I think is an important point that we don't want to lose, uh, which is it's a horrific, horrific event, a school mass shooting, yeah? yes. whether, whether Nashville um, as recent um, as uh, this year, or whether it was Uvalde last year, or whether it was Sandy Hook um, now 11 years ago, right. or Columbine 24 years ago. It's absolutely horrific. But the uh, key aspect, <laughs> the key aspect is this: is it's still a very, very rare scenario. Yes. Yeah. So it is very unlikely, particularly in a state such as New York, where you have quite strong gun laws. Yeah. I'm not able just to go to a corner shop and buy an assault rifle here without background checks. It's not possible in New York. Can't it's buy an assault weapon here. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. So, um, so yes. and, and and lockdown drills rehearse for the specific scenario not of a school shooting, which could be gang-related violence where somebody picks up a gun and they just want to shoot another gang member on school grounds, and that's a one-on-one -on -one interaction. It is around the scenario that an intruder comes into the building and tries to kill as many children as possible by going from room to room. This scenario is very, very unlikely to happen. And hence, Knock on wood. Knock on Absolutely. wood. Absolutely. So, I mean, the chancellor just last Friday at the press conference on school safety said it never has happened. And he knocked on wood just last Friday. Again, it's the culture of fear yeah. that, that we are buying into um, against our children, where we think we have to protect them for this very unlikely scenario. We have to do four drills in order to do this thing effectively. That uh, we need to address this in, in, in terms of bringing down the number just to one and uh, have it as a system in place for those who want it, recognizing, on the other hand, that it's very unlikely to happen, particularly in New York City. And I think that's a very good point, is that uh, in this conversation, you forget that this, in fact, has not happened in New York at all. We've had very little in the way of mass shootings, really Buffalo, and that was a supermarket. Um, and uh, thank God. And part of that is because we have strong gun laws. But as you saw in Buffalo, that young man uh, was uh, uh, bought a gun and then he modified it with a part from Pennsylvania. Uh, so you cannot buy an assault weapon in New York, but he, that, that uh, you know, uh, uh, person demonstrated that you can monkey around with um, another weapon and make it be essentially the same thing as an assault weapon. And so that is something that, you know, that's federal legislation. We can't control that. Um, and uh, we, you know, that's why we need federal um, uh, gun violence uh, protection laws uh, that limit the sale of assault weapons. We once had an assault weapon ban in this country for the period of time that we had an assault weapons ban. We didn't have assault weapon uh, violence. And it came out of Columbine, right? So we know that we can do this. We know it does matter and it will change things. So that's something that I think we need to recognize as well. And I'm really glad Robert brought that up because, in fact, it is extremely rare around the country. It is extremely rare and it has not yet happened in New York. And we hope to God that it never does. 
So I'm curious, um, you mentioned the chancellor, Robert. Has anybody asked the mayor or the chancellor what their position on this legislation might be? And if you got their support, would that be helpful, do you think, Joanne? Well, we have uh, had conversations with them. I know Robert talked to somebody. There is a fellow in charge of uh, of that operation. But I think what they're doing is, um, uh, you know, the city schools is a school district, right? We have 700. Uh, you know, they're working also with statewide partners to address this issue and what are those best practices. Because I think everybody agrees that we need to move to a best practices model. The question to, I think, may be what are those best practices, uh, in some people's minds. But, um, so my sense is that they have basically listened. They've heard what we've been saying. They haven't, uh, uh, commented one way or the other. And I think they're, they're basically, um, uh, uh, playing this, uh, conservatively in the sense that they don't, they want to know what more about it, uh, before they, uh, would, would take a position one way or the other. So um, since we have a little bit of time, I just wanted to move on to an issue that I know is is close to your heart, uh, Joanne, because the dyslexia issue is one that you've been working on for many, many years. We do seem to have an administration which understands the importance of dyslexia, but at the same time, you have bills in the legislature that would address this in a more fundamental, systematic way. Do you want to talk about that just a little bit before we have to say goodbye? Sure. And um, I think that there are a couple of issues here. One is uh, uh, the notion that uh, legislation to change curriculum is something that is not constitutional in New York. It is a source of great frustration, and plenty of people are frustrated by that, including myself and, and a lot of other people. Uh, one issue is professional development and how do you do professional development that is going to stick? Because as you may recall, there was a period of time where everybody was doing Wilson and they went for a Wilson uh, weekend training, but there was no follow-up support for them. So a lot of teachers forgot. And of course, they're using textbooks that are, you know, uh, support uh, uh, you know, an, an, an effort, a way to teach reading that isn't actually teaching reading. So we get to a lot of issues there. So the dyslexia issue is very important, but really the methodology, the approach that works with kids with dyslexia works for pretty much all children, right? And we persistently have uh, 38% of our kids reading proficiently at fourth grade. That means 62% are not. And that there's no doubt that there are not 62% of our children with dyslexia. So we need to address that basic fundamentals instructional issue, which we are going to be doing uh, as uh, you'll, I think there'll be some information coming out uh, fairly shortly about some new efforts in that regard. But one bill I've had, I've sort of focused, I have a lot of background in higher education, for example, um, as well as having been a, you know, a, a, a teacher of uh, kids with uh, disabilities, um, and president of the Dyslexia Society here in New York. So um, one of the things we know is that persistently, again and again and again and again, our teachers are graduating from programs not knowing how to teach reading. They have learned a lot about reading, uh, but they have learned about human development. They've learned about psychology of reading, but they haven't learned how the brain works and processes reading. So uh, I have a bill that would require, you know, everybody has six credits they have to take of literacy. I would mandate uh, three credits in the science of reading, essentially, in structured literacy. Um, I'm now working on another bill that we would actually basically uh, look at each educational program uh, that we have and find out what are they doing, right? What are they doing with the five pillars of reading? Are they doing one pillar or two pillars or the cart for the horse pillar or not? So we're really focusing on that as well. So that's great. And if people have questions, I will put down information about how to contact uh, Assemblymember Simon and her office to help push forward either the bill that she has now sponsored to limit the number of lockdown drills and to give parents the, the ability to opt out and also her bills on dyslexia, which are extremely important also. I want to thank both of you, um, um, Assemblymember Simon and, and Robert Mertfeld for all your work on this issue. Um, and hopefully this uh, session, we will get this bill passed um, in the assembly. And thank you again for appearing on Talk Out of School.
Thank you, Lainey. I very much appreciated the opportunity. Thank this you so much. Me too. Okay, great. Um, and please, uh, this is Lainey Hameson, host of Talk Out of School on WBAI 99.5 FM Pacifica Radio. Our show is available as a podcast. If you missed the live version or want to recommend it to a friend, also please consider becoming a member of WBAI or a special supporter of this show, Talk Out of School, by calling 212-209-2950. That's 212-209-2950. There's no other show on the air that delves as deeply into the issues affecting our schools as this one is. You can also contribute online at WBAI.org. We really need the support of listeners like you to keep going as one of the only non-commercial, purely membership-supported radio stations in New York City that doesn't run any ads. We will be back soon with another episode of Talk Out of School. And until then, be careful, be safe, and thanks so much for listening. Good night and thank you. Hello, everyone. This is Lainey Hampson with Talk Out of School, inviting you to join me and co-host Daniel Alisea at our new day and time, Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. We'll be talking about all the... You're listening to WBAI, New York, 99.5 FM. My name is Bill Samuels, founder of NYPeoplesConvention.org. WBAI is New York's leader in progressive talk. Whether the issue is prison reform, education reform, the legalization of marijuana, or women's rights, the people's issues are covered on these airways. So stay tuned for the best and leading-edge progressive ideas and analysis. And remember to support independent media financially. 33 cents a day. Not much, is it? Loose change. A third of a cup of coffee. It's nothing. But did you know that 33 cents a day can help WBAI stay on the air? That's all it takes. As little as 33 cents a day. $10 a month. You can be a BAI buddy. A BAI buddy is someone who signs up to make a recurring monthly donation to WBAI using either a credit card, debit card, or by electronic fund transfer from your bank account. It's safe, secure, and easy, and it helps keep our unique, alternative, and diverse programming on the air. You'll get a WBAI membership card and other goodies. Sign up online. Go to WBAI.org and click on Donate. All the details are right there. The WBAI buddy. Be one today. Extinction Diaries. Plankton is a foundation of the entire planet's food chain. They are plant-like cells that produce a large portion of the world's oxygen and serve as food for krill, which are consumed by many species like whales, dolphins, seals, squid, penguins, fish, and even humans. Plankton have died off over 40% since 1950, and now ocean warming and acidification are accelerating that. Scientists have recently discovered that plankton are undergoing rapid and dramatic changes as they evolve to survive. They are also moving closer to the poles where water is colder and more nutrient-rich. Some have moved thousands of miles from their historical habitats. Relocation and the decline in population are forcing species like whales and dolphins to search the world's oceans for food as they become increasingly emaciated from starvation. Scientists agree that plankton are pushed to the limit by the conditions in our oceans. Since plankton is the foundation of life, life on Earth shares the fate of the plankton. My name is Arna Oliveira, and this is a Small World Radio production. Hey, BAI lover. Imagine a BAI PR team that every week would place articles in the left media about BAI. Or a team that creates an each one reach one promo campaign to increase our membership. Or a team that reaches out for grants and major donors. We can do it, but we need a real infusion of people power, a grassroots volunteer effort. A key person in all of this would be a volunteer coordinator. So this is a call for volunteer coordinator. If you can volunteer 10 to 20 hours a week, have a vision, can recruit volunteers, can communicate effectively, and want to expand BAI's reach, then call at 212-209-2870 to apply for volunteer coordinator. Call 209-2870 or email at volunteers at WBAI.org. Thanks so much.
listeners don't want to use the website or the call center to contribute to WBAI, that's okay. Please feel free to send your check or money order to WBAI, 3rd Floor, 388 Atlantic Avenue, Brooklyn, New York, 11217. Please make your check or money order out to Pacifica-WBAI. We thank you for your donation and hope that you will spread the word and tell your friends. And please keep on listening.